You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 229 of this season, season four, and also 519 overall. We are nearing the close of what I call season four. We've got not much left in the way of days before the end of the year, the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023, Lord willing. And in this episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more about Christmas coming up, but we're actually going to spend some time talking about some more nerdy things uh, here at the beginning. Then we'll talk about Bill Gates and some things he's been saying that, uh, boy, how do you do? They sound an awful lot like what uh, supposed conspiracy theorists have been saying about this whole effort to depopulate the planet or is it overpopulated and what all's going on with regards to combating climate change and birth rates, et cetera, et cetera. We will also get into a little something that my wife sent me that I thought was pretty darn interesting, pretty interesting uh, with regards to the Charlie Brown Christmas and how that came to be talking about the Bible, bringing the Bible into your mainstream uh, primetime TV broadcasts, how that was controversial, actually, even back when a Charlie Brown Christmas was made, and it happened anyways, and that's all for the best. A little bit about uh, Glenn Beck <laughs> segment on the JFK files being released uh, or not yet. Uh, there's been several times where it was thought that they would be released, but then they haven't been. And uh, also a word or two about Reno, Nevada's mayor filing a lawsuit after discovering a uh, tracker on her vehicle. All of that and more in this podcast episode. So buckle up, get ready. It's going to get weird. I'm going to make it weird. But first, let's Talk a moment about Korean ramen, Korean noodles, specifically a brand called Samyang, which I was introduced to, me and my boys in particular, my family more generally, were introduced to Samyang noodles here about a year ago, I think it was. I think it was last Christmas around this time that my sister-in-law, Alyssa Mullet, gave our family a bag of various Korean noodle packets, ramen packets. And all of them were Samyang brand and very spicy, particularly 
for our palates. We are not typically or have not typically been much into spicy foods with the exception of Flamin' Hot Cheetos and occasionally something with jalapeno. But we're not typically super into spicy foods. But then there's this thing, this you know, spicy ramen challenge that uh, you know some people like to do on the internet. And the big idea is this. You're going to eat some of this spicy ramen and look at you. Aren't you tough and aren't you impressive that you're willing to eat this uh, you know, hot, hot, uh, ramen. So we tried it out and just for funsies, we tried it out and, uh, it was delicious, but also very, very spicy, especially for us not being terribly familiar, but there were two packets of the two times Samyang, uh, two times spicy nuclear is what it's called. There were two packets of that, that just kind of hung out. They just, they didn't get much play. They didn't get eaten. They just stayed in the pantry for the past year or so. And some of the less spicy stuff, it was like, you know, hey, this is actually pretty tasty. Yeah, it's spicy, but, you know, doing some stir fry with it, it's not bad. The carbo is my favorite for taste. That with some stir fry veggies, maybe a little bit of, you know, meat and uh, soft boiled egg. My wife, Lauren, she makes that for me and it is just delicious. I really, really enjoy that. But the carbo... We ran out of, I've bought it several times over the past year just to have on hand and to eat now and then, especially when I need my sinuses cleared. (laughs) It is good for that. We ran out and I was like, hey, do we have any other ramen? Is there any left over? And I was told, oh yeah, we, we still have the two times if you want to try that. I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe, you know, I want to enjoy the food. I don't want to just be miserable. And I got to thinking about it. I'm like, you know, yeah, let's try it. It just can't hang out in the pantry forever. We got to eat it at some point. Somebody's going to have to eat it. We don't want to just throw it out. We don't want to just have it collecting dust. That's not so good. So yeah, let's try it. Well, Lauren made me some last week and it was actually, it was, it was quite delicious. It was quite good. I really enjoyed it with the stir-fry veggies and the soft-boiled eggs. It was it was quite good, quite delicious. Yeah, it was spicy, but but it was actually quite tasty. Well, then, you know, we get to playing some Settlers of Catan, me and the kids, uh, me, Josiah, Eli, Solomon, and Evelyn last night. We get to eating uh, some Christmas cookies, and, you know, it's in the evening. It's a Sunday evening, and... I'm still hungry. I would like something, you know, like maybe a little bit more substantive. And I asked, I said, Hey, can I, would would somebody be willing to, you know, make me some spicy ramen? And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that other packet. If we have another packet of that two times spicy nuclear, I'll take it. And you know what, this time, don't worry about the veggies and all that. We're all, you know, trying to take it easy on a Sunday evening. Uh, Let's just make it, you know, your typical way. Well, it, it is significantly spicier when you don't have the stir-fry veggies or the soft-boiled egg to kind of dissipate. Uh, it is significantly spicier. And I, I don't know that I felt like I was going to die, but I did find myself thinking, <laughs> uh, you know, I wonder if this is how people call sometimes uh, an ambulance or 
end up in the emergency room <laughs> eating spicy foods because, boy, howdy, like blood pressure and the sweating and the like pulsing uh, that I felt in my head. <laughs> I'm like, man, this is this is hot. <laughs> but I got it down. I got it down. I kept it down. I ate the whole thing, even drank up the uh, juices you know, that were left over in the bowl when all the noodles were gone. And I made it, right? I, I made it and uh, got through it. And I'm still feeling it this morning. I'm still uh, remembering. I, I have it with me still that that's some, that's some spicy stuff. That's some spicy ramen. Again, I like the carbo better. According to a scale I found on carmenfoods.com, it's kind of a food blog uh, for Asian foods generally, according to their scale, the carbo is 2,400 Scoville heating units, spicy. And then up from there, another that we've got a few times is the curry. That's at 3810. Actually, I don't think it tastes as spicy. That one, uh, even though it supposedly is spicier, doesn't taste as spicy. And then up from there, the 2018 re-release of the two times spicy nuclear, 10,000 SHU, 10,000 Scoville heating units. The first release was 8808, but then the second was 10,000. The more recent updated was 10,000, as I understand it. And it is, it is spicy. It's some spicy ramen. But again, just for an enjoyment factor, to actually like it, uh, I personally prefer stir-fry veggies, maybe some chicken, for instance, or maybe even some, uh, you know, steak. If you throw some steak in there, it's also really good. Some of that and some soft-boiled eggs. And mm, it is so good. So, so good. Uh, in other nerdy news, if you will, part of the reason why you haven't heard as much from me in the podcasting over the past week, besides it just being the run-up to the Christmas season, the holidays, there being extra busyness with regards to that, Saturday all day, after two months of planning and preparation and research and study, my oldest son, Josiah, and myself went and played with our friends, Paul, Jonah, and Jude Pavlik, and Taylor Cross, the big, big game, Twilight Imperium. Twilight Imperium, fourth edition, is the most epic board game I have ever seen or heard of or experienced just to give you a little bit of perspective, my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik, took five hours on Friday night setting this game up. Five hours just to get the pieces out because he had just bought it. He hadn't ever played. None of us had ever played. Five hours to get it pulled out and set up on two tables, two large folding tables with a piece of duct tape run between and a tablecloth over that five hours to set it up. We all then convened on Saturday morning at the church in the sanctuary, 9 a.m. thereabouts. It took us 15 hours, 15 hours 
to play, not even a full game. I mean, there was a lot of that, to be clear, that was not really playing so much as trying to look up the rules because there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of mechanics in the game. There's a lot of things that work differently depending on various situations. And there's a large community that's very interested and active that plays. Like once they get into it, they get really into it and they keep track of the rules and you can jump on a Discord server like Paul did as we were playing and just type a question in the live chat and ask, hey, how does this rule work? Am I allowed to do this? Is he allowed to do this? We're trying to do this. Is that according to the rules or is that forbidden? And you will get a response actually in real time from other players in the community, which is pretty cool. That's a, you know, what a time to be alive sort of a feature here that there's that much of a following and, and uh, enthusiastic fan base for the game. But we got it set up and played and boy, howdy, did we have a really good time and we were all extraordinarily tired yesterday, but we had a really, really good time and really enjoyed it. And I know this is a departure from what I typically delve into more in depth with politics and theology, but just bear with me for this episode. We're going to talk about some spicy ramen. We're going to talk about some Twilight Imperium. And I want to tell the story of our first Twilight Imperium game and why I think it was beneficial, even though it was a very, very long game, why I think it was beneficial for us to play this game and why I look forward to the next game we're going to play of it. So starting off, just to give you a little bit of a setup here, who was who and the lead up to this. Initially, we were going to play back in mid November, before Thanksgiving, we were hoping to, and then not one, not two, all three of our families got sick all at the same time, the weekend before Thanksgiving. We all got sick. All of our families got sick. We had to cancel. There was just nothing for it, and we were very disappointed. But we said at the time, we said, hey, no, we still want to do this. Let's pick a date in December. And we'll just reschedule. And that's fine. That's okay. These things happen. It is the season to get sick. And we all got sick. And it's okay. But in the run-up to our November date, when we were planning initially to play, we all were emailing back and forth and talking over Signal and then talking at church because we all go to church together here in Greeley, Evans, Colorado. And we had picked our factions and we were researching our factions and we were researching how do you play the game? What are the rules? How does this work? How do I win? You know, we know at the beginning, it's a big game. We know at the beginning that it's a long, long game. Also, we know that there's a lot of ways you could play it depending on who your faction is and who everybody else is playing and how they're playing, right? So to set it up, I picked Hakan, which is this race of lion people. And they are really good at commerce and trading. And they get a special set of rules. Everybody gets a special set of rules that apply just to their faction, advantages, disadvantages, a story, lore, all that. My special ability is with regards to trading as the Hakan. And I can trade with everybody in the galaxy, all the other players, right from the beginning. Whereas everybody else, they have to be neighbors 
And they have to actually have a, an adjacent system to the player they want to trade with. Otherwise, they can't trade. But those rules, they don't apply to me. I can trade with everybody right from the jump, the whole game through. And also, I can give the ability to trade with everybody by way of a promissory note. I can give that ability to one other player. So I can trade even the ability to trade with everybody, even if you're not neighbors, to somebody and then they can use that. They can leverage that ability to their advantage. And I can get something in return that helps my faction to do well. But the flip side is my faction is not particularly strong. You know, other they get advantages for their ships being stronger or their defenses being stronger or their ships being faster or, you know, getting hits on lower dice rolls. So it's more likely, it's more likely that you're going to actually score a hit when you roll the dice uh, in, in the midst of a battle. And all that helps as you're weighing and measuring whether you want to go to war with that person or this person, depending on if you're defending or attacking. You might play differently. You might play more aggressively or more cautiously, depending on if your ships are stronger or if they're weaker than your neighbors. And in my case, as the Hakan, my ships were not the strongest. And I don't start the game as the Hakan with as many ships or as many strong ships, even with them being a little weaker. I don't start with as many strong ships as other factions do. But I start with lots of trade goods, the most of anybody, lots of commodities. I get six total. And I also have that ability to trade with everybody, even if I'm not neighbors. So that's great. My oldest son, meanwhile, picked the Sar, the clan of Sar. I was the Emirates of Hakan. He was the clan of Sar. And, you know, just to describe these people or this uh, race or this faction, they're like uh, werewolf, werebear, you know, space bear, badger creatures. And they're a really scrappy race and not necessarily strong, but resourceful and adaptable. And they can just kind of omnivore all throughout the galaxy. But they're always kind of, you know, getting the short end of the stick and getting pushed around, but then they can, you know, dodge and move and they can move through asteroid fields and things like that from the beginning. And that's a great advantage. They can go into an asteroid field, almost like a wild animal going into a, a thicket or a burrow where the hunter's not going to be able to get them easily, and they're going to have trouble trying to dislodge them if the creature doesn't want to get out of there. You know, kind of like that. That's what the SAR are like. But they also get advantages as far as having a mobile uh, space dock, this mobile factory that can move around. Everybody else has to, you know, basically just stay put. Once it's placed, it has to stay put, or else it has to be decommissioned and then rebuilt somewhere else. And that's just, you know, it's a hassle, right? But the SAR, the SAR, they can move theirs along with all their ships. And so they can transport their ability to produce units around the map. And that is, that's a huge advantage. It makes them very adaptable and very flexible, especially if they're getting attacked in their home system, which they can lose. Everybody else, if they lose their home system, they can't score points anymore until they get their system back. You got to protect that home turf. But the SAR, you can take their home system and they could just camp out in an asteroid field for all they want to do potentially and just crank out units right there and make a comeback when you turn your back on them when you turn your attention to something else they could swoop back in and 
retake what is rightfully theirs as they see it. So that was great. That was really cool that he had that faction. And then we come to uh, Jude Pavlik. Jude Pavlik picked the Ghosts of Krios. And the Ghosts of Krios, they're like these beings of light who aren't even from this galaxy. They're from another galaxy. But they have the ability to travel through wormholes without needing any special technology. Everybody else has to research that, and it takes a long time. They don't get it at the late game. But the Ghosts of Krios, they get it from the very beginning. They get it from the jump that they can come into the galaxy that we're playing in from outside the galaxy, their home system. You can't get them because you can't travel through that wormhole to get at them. But they can travel into the galaxy through the wormhole, or they can travel back into their home system if they want to go back in and retreat. They can do that tactical retreat or build up and then punch through and expand and do what they want to do in this galaxy. So that was Jude. And he was just from the beginning wanting to play a peaceful game, wants to get along with everybody. And I thought, you know what? That works to my advantage to be his neighbor. When I pick where I'm going to have my home system, I'm going to choose to be neighbors with him because if he wants peace, I want peace. We both win. That's a really good thing. Next up was his older brother, Jonah Pavlik. Jonah was playing the Lizix or the L1Z1X. And the Lizix, they're basically like these zombie robots, cyborgs from a long, long time ago who in a previous life were kind of the advisors or the servants of the former emperors. But they kind of just, they went off on their own and then they got really experimental with technology and they started replacing more and more of themselves until now they are as much machine as they are uh, you know, kind of a remnant of what was formerly a human. And so there are these zombie robots of sorts, undead, undying machines, kind of like the Borg also, kind of like you know the, the uh, Nazgul in Lord of the Rings, kind of a hodgepodge combination of you know, these other influences. And they get some really strong ships from the beginning. They're a really powerful race, really powerful faction militarily. And oh, by the way, the big idea here is to become emperor. You That's what you're trying to get. You're trying to get 10 points over the course of this long, long game to become emperor of the galaxy because there's a power vacuum. Nobody's the emperor right now. Somebody needs to be. And these guys used to be servants of the emperor. And so they want to ascend to the throne. They know how this power works. and They've been staying alive, not for no reason, but so they could retake power. So that's what they're about. And Jonah, for his part, he was going to play an aggressive game from the beginning. He picked a powerful faction to be able to do that with. And he was the one I was really not wanting to be neighbors with because I'm thinking, man, I, I am weak militarily. He's strong militarily. I want to have a peaceful game. He does not want to have a peaceful game. So I don't want to be neighbors with him. I want to be opposite side of the board from him so that I have as much time as possible to trade and have a happy life before I have to deal with him at all as a neighbor. Next up was Paul Pavlik. And Paul Pavlik, he is my friend and my pastor, and he's the one who bought the game and set it up and really, I think, probably more than anybody, invested himself personally in this game coming to be and making it possible. I really, really appreciate that. He picked a faction known as the Embers of Muat. And the Embers of Muat, they're basically this fire people 
that have to go around. When they leave their planet, they have to wear these special suits just to contain how fiery they are. Otherwise, they would burn up their ships. Otherwise, they would burn up the people that they're interacting with in the broader universe. They have to wear these suits, but they're very, very powerful as well in some ways. Not in all ways, but in some ways. Specifically, they get this ship, if you can call it that, this weapon, maybe more rightly, uh, they get this battle station. Maybe that's a better word for it. That's no moon. Uh, they get this battle station called the War Sun from the beginning. Everybody else has to research it, but you can. It just takes a while, and you're not researching other things in the meantime. The Embers of Muat get it from the beginning. And as such, it's a very intimidating thing when they roll up in the neighboring system with a war sun and some other ships besides because, boy, howdy. I mean, it's a it's a powerful thing. It's like having a Death Star, but they call it a war sun. Yes, it is uh, a little bit of borrowing. The whole game is full of that, and you don't mind, right? In the moment, you don't mind because it's just kind of like a, a greatest hits album of all the nerdy things that you might enjoy from sci-fi and fantasy. But the Embers of Muat, that was Paul's choice, his pick. And he actually, I I wasn't quite sure what he was going to do, but he was kind of posturing in the run-up to the game to be more diplomatic, being more of a peacemaker type, to keep the others, if they were getting aggressive, to keep them kind of in check and, and in line. And as a way to do that, he would have the war sons to basically, you know, say, hey, I've got the biggest stick, behave, or I'm going to come get you. I'm going to come whack you with this war son. So I thought, okay, I, you know, if if he's going to be on the one hand and Jude Pavlik, who wants to play a peaceable game as the Krios, he's going to be on the other hand. Well, I want to be maybe nestled in between with my space cats, my, you know, lion people. And that's what I'm going to do. Last but not least, there was Taylor Cross. Taylor Cross, energetic guy and father of all daughters, but a manly man and, uh, you know, manages a, a dairy in the area and very capable, very smart, well-spoken. And, uh, it, you know, also, you know, I would I would say a nice guy, but also aggressive, right? If that makes sense. Nice guy, high energy, but also aggressive. He picked a faction called the Mentak Coalition. And basically what they are is bounty hunters, space pirates, raiders, uh, think Han Solo, smuggler types, it's just these kind of outlaws that form their own coalition, right? Their own team, their own alliance, kind of a, a rebel alliance of sorts, but also very capable of pirating and raiding other people's factions. And they get benefits with regards to that from the jump. If you're a neighbor of them and you make a trade, well, they can take a cut. They don't have to, but they can take a cut if you have a trade that results in you having more than three trade goods in your stockpile. Well, that's going to be a big problem for me. I'm thinking to myself in the run-up, it's going to be a big problem for me because I want to have as many trade goods as possible as bargaining chips in my inventory, in my uh, you know stockpile, in my warehouse, so that I can build stuff, so I can buy stuff, so I can negotiate my own transactions 
and use that for leverage. And also even just to have it in the bank. You know, that can be a deterrent if people are like, I don't know if I want to mess with you right off. You've got a lot of money, which could be converted into ships at a moment's notice. And I don't know what you'll buy, but you might buy it just right as I'm about to attack based on what I'm sending at you. I I don't want to mess with that. Well, it's going to be a major problem for my strategy, for my faction, if I'm next door neighbors. And so it was very fortuitous. It was very, very fortuitous for me that when we rolled to see who would go first in picking their spot where they were going to put their home system, Taylor and Paul and Jude all ended up picking their spots ahead of me. So I knew where they were going to be before I got to pick where I was going to be. It was absolutely perfect because I was able to put myself between Jude and Paul and on the opposite side of the galaxy from Jonah and from Taylor. So the Mentak player who would be pillaging me and also the zombie robots who would be (laughs) uh, hunting some space cats if they had their way in short order and doing it effectively. So then we get down to playing, right? We get down to playing and the whole day we are just trying to figure out the rules and we made some mistakes. We did some things that, hey, it turns out actually you can't, we can't do that. Uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have done it that way moving forward. Let's not allow that. Actually, the game works like this. That's the mechanic. And of course, as you're playing these turns and these rounds, you have a lot of time because they're long turns, they're long rounds. You have a lot of time as other people are making their moves to think about what your next moves are going to be. Also, a lot of time to consider and to question, hey, can you actually do that? Is that is that according to the rules? And so really, I think, you know, our first game, it being so long, half of the time, half of that 15 hours was just us trying to double check the rule book, trying to look online, trying to ask the Discord channel of other motivated fans and players of this game. But I'll give you the long and short of it, the, the summary of the very end. And fortunately, I've got a picture here of close to the end, what the map looked like with all of our pieces on the board. It wasn't the very, very end, but it was close to the end. I think it was uh, the fourth round before we had gone into the fifth round. Basically, Paul cut across the galaxy to intercept the SAR, played by my son Josiah, who were right next door to him. And the Lizix, played by Paul's oldest son, Jonah, basically cutting them off from access to the home system, the home planet, the main planet objective in the center. Mechtol Rex is where you want to be if you want to be emperor. So it's kind of a race to the center. He cut across in an L shape and blocked them with a pretty sizable military force to where basically they weren't going to be able to expand much beyond that. Taylor, meanwhile, moved to the center to intercept Paul so that he wouldn't just be able to run amok and absorb all their systems. And also, so if, you know, he did, if he tried to just take all their systems, he could then swoop in and exploit, you know, basically what Paul had left vulnerable behind him. An interesting thing, my son, Josiah, moves into a little asteroid belt basically to threaten the 
vulnerable holdings that Paul had left behind. But keep in mind, not everybody can travel into asteroid belts. You have to research the tech, like lots of things. You have to research the tech if you don't start with it from the beginning, like the SAR do, like these bear, space bear people do. He's able to get in there, but Paul's not able to attack him. So then he's basically just coiled up and could strike any one of three systems that Paul has and eventually did. He eventually did. He took this legendary planet that Paul had, Hope's End, and threatened his home system of Muat, which then forced Paul basically to have to pull back for a time. He would have, I think, made an aggressive move against the Lizix and against Josiah much sooner, but all of a sudden he had to stop stop his advance, build up in his home system, and then encounter and confront this threat. Meanwhile, Jonah was between Paul and Taylor effectively blocked from expansion pretty early on. He was able to get three systems. Josiah was able to get three systems plus the asteroid belt, but that didn't really give him any resources. Both Josiah and Jonah effectively blocked with three systems by Taylor and Paul, by the Mentak on the one hand and the Muat on the other hand. And at the same time, I'm way over in the corner making trades. I got trade the first round and was very generous with it and basically told everybody, you can all replenish your commodities, however many commodities you can get. You can do that for free. You don't have to spend a strategic token and a command token. And that engendered goodwill. That was what I read. That's what I heard. You got to be friends with everybody, enemies with nobody facilitate these trades, take a little cut, you know, build and build and build. And then in the later game, that's when you use what you've stockpiled and built up to actually expand and make your moves. So that's what I did. Meanwhile, Jude, he built up, he expanded, he made use of wormholes, made a brief foray into the territory between Jonah and Taylor and Josiah and Paul and then retreated back through the wormhole and went back home with everything that he had. Didn't end up having you know, a conflict there. Just got in, checked it out, figured, all right, this is too hot. <laughs> There's too much going on over here. I'm going home. Went back home and just built up forces there. And spoiler alert, we did not end up finishing the game. We actually called it in the fifth round because it was 1 a.m. It was after midnight, I think, when we officially called it, but it was 1 a.m. when we finished cleaning everything up, putting it away, and uh, went home. But a really, really fun, really fun time. I had the most points, not by much. By one point, I was uh, leading Jude. I think he would have won or very easily could have won. I think it would have been very, very close between him and I, but we ended up calling it because it was so late. And so I was voted the victory because I was ahead. And next time, next time we play, it's going to be, I think, a very, very different game. We'll all be playing different factions, I would bet. And we will have a better understanding of the rules. And also, too, I've ordered a copy of both the base game and the expansion. Because now now that we've played it with friends and we realize it's not always feasible to have everybody, you know, get together whenever you want to play – but I might be able to play with my boys and teach the game to them and practice at home. 
we've got that coming. We're going to try it out. We're going to play it at home. And then, hey, who knows? You can play so many players to a board, six to eight. Eight is pushing it. Six is typically the most you want to play because of how big it is and how long it is. But maybe, just maybe, when we build this up, if we keep doing it, we have two games going at the same time. We set them up across from each other to where if it's not your turn, you can kind of just go over, see what they're doing over here, see how their game is going, check it out, and then go back to your game. Consult, confer, talk with each other. We'll have parallel universes, you know, the multiverse going on with Twilight Imperium. That could be fun. But it really already was. I mean, it was long. I'm still tired from it, but it was it was a really, really fun game and very interesting, right? Very interesting to see other people's personalities come out, to see how people approach the game, how they decision make, how they reason, how they interact. I think everybody by turn had their moments of, of surprise and shock, like, whoa, wow, you can do that? Oh man, that really, really changes the plan of what I was going to do next. Man, that really, ugh, shoot. You know, or a little bit testy every now and then, like, oh no, like, don't do that, right? Like, what are you doing? But overall, like lots of laughs, lots of good time, lots of drama. It was very much a space opera. The space cats came out on top this time. I did briefly take and hold Mechatol Rex while everybody else was busy. And then I quickly remembered why I didn't want to be neighbors with Taylor as I'm trying to make transactions or do things. And it's like, ah, shoot, you're just pillaging now. He ended up driving me from Mechatol Rex. I think he was expecting a fight, but the bulk of my fleet was uh, actually next door to Paul's home system. He was expecting either me or Josiah to attack him in his home system. Josiah had taken Hope's End, which was right next door. I had taken a neighboring system with three planets, Regal 1, 2, and 3. And basically, it was a Mexican standoff, three-way standoff. We briefly conferred, Paul and I, he's like, are you going to attack me? I said, no, I'm not going to attack you. He says, do you think Josiah's going to attack me? I'm like, I don't know. I don't think so. He's like, why don't you think so? I'm like, because it's a Mexican standoff and whichever one of us attacks the other, you know, the other one who's not attacking or being attacked is in the stronger position to just come in and mop up. He's like, okay. So we get back to the board. It was his turn. He ends up moving his war son back into Hope's end and using his hero's ability blows up Josiah's entire fleet just about. And it was this big climactic moment, destroyed the planet, destroyed the system. Very, very dramatic. All of us are like, what? What? That is a thing? You can do that? Now we know. Be careful with the Muat, especially later in game. If they decide they want your fleet gone, they can do that. But again, really great time. Very much fun. Fun had by all. And a little bit about the game, just to you know, give some context here. This game's been around for 25 years. I had never heard of it. It is put out by Fantasy Flight Games. It is uh, in its fourth installment. A bit expensive, a bit pricey as far as games go. But if you're into strategy, if you don't mind playing a long game and an in-depth game, if you don't mind being called a super nerd, it's, it's a fun, fun time. And you should definitely check it out. Highly recommend so far. More to come, I'm sure, as we go along and play it some more. But back to the real world, okay? Back out of Twilight Imperium, back into the real world. Let's put the sci-fi aside for a moment. Let's put the nerdy 
you know, geeking out all day, all weekend, uh, aside for a moment. I want to talk briefly in the time that we've got left about a little video clip from Bill Gates. This is Bill Gates. Uh, I don't think it's a deep fake. I don't think somebody just like voiced over and played, you know, computer graphics uh, games with his face to make it look like, you know, kind of like the bad uh, lip reading videos. I don't think anybody was playing games with it. I think he really did say this. But a lot of folks with regards to Bill Gates have been asking questions. Okay, why is he pushing the vaccines so hard around the world and here at home? Why is he buying up farmland here in the U.S. and then just kind of taking it out of productivity? You know, what what's he doing now? What, what's he doing over here? Why is he talking about that? Why is he friends with Jeffrey Epstein? Why is he, <laughs> you know, why, why is his wife divorcing him because of his close uh, friendship with Jeffrey Epstein and her uh, probably thinking he was a client of Jeffrey Epstein? You know, what, what's going on with this guy, right? Well, here is him in his own words. I'm going to play this clip and you could take a listen and I just I, come to your own conclusions by, by all means, come to your own conclusions about what is He's saying here. Is the population going to get so big that feeding everybody and maintaining the environment is going to be impossible? Here we can see a chart that looks at the total world population over the last several hundred years. And at first glance, this is a bit scary. We go from less than a billion in 1800, and then three, four, five, six, and 7.4 billion where we are today is happening even faster. So Melinda and I wondered whether providing new medicines and keeping children alive, would that create more of a population problem? What we found out is that as health improves, families choose to have less children. And this effect is very, very dramatic. We find that in every country of the world, this is repeated. The population growth goes down as we improve health. So we've taken that chart that shows the global population growth, and we've actually extended it out all the way to 2100. And we can see that instead of continuing, it actually flattens out. Another way to see that is through this rate of population growth. And you can see that in the 60s, that reached a pretty high number, over 2% per year. And it's now come way, way down. Now, 11 billion people still a lot, but the good news is that the faster we improve health, the faster family size goes down. Ah, okay, there, there it is. The faster family size goes down. So the big idea is we want family size to go down. That's the big idea from Bill Gates. And this is a while back. This is not a recent thing, just to be clear. He didn't just come out with this video, but we're talking about it right now. And uh, it, it is still relevant in the absence of some kind of a repudiation, in the absence of him saying, this is not what he thinks. This is not his position. This is not his goal. This is not what he's pursuing anymore. Uh, this is still where he's at. And I think, you know, to my concern, my point, as a father of eight, uh, I, I see myself at cross purposes with Bill Gates. He wants to see family size go down. Uh, I don't necessarily want to see everybody have eight kids. Like, that's not my goal. I don't have an objection to that per se, but my interest is in looking askew at somebody who 
would say, I want to see all family size go down, right? If somebody says, I want the average family size to be one kid so that we can uh, you know, cut the population in half uh, globally because that's going to be better for the planet or better for the environment or better for me or I just don't like kids or whatever. You know, if that's somebody's interest, uh, I want to look askew at that because we are not going to get along. We're going to see the world very, very differently in every respect. And this does go back to something I've talked about with regards to a really great book by Charles C. Mann, The Wizard and the Prophet. If you haven't read it, do yourself a favor. You will understand a lot of debates of a sociopolitical and cultural uh, nature very differently when you see that these are fundamental presuppositions and attitudes and mindsets that set what I would say is the conservative approach to problem solving apart from what the progressive uh, approach is. It goes back to your family of origin. It goes back to how you believe God has set things up. Not necessarily that Norman Borlaug was this you know, super theist Christian, but he was raised in a home where his father, in particular as a farmer, had a positive outlook on our ability to uh, increase carrying capacity, to use science towards the end of improving carrying capacity for the planet. Let's improve our agricultural output and not just say, uh, let's reduce population. William Vogt, by contrast, grew up in a very troubled home, a very upset home, a very dysfunctional home. His parents are always fighting. His parents are always being angry and mean towards one another and towards him. He saw himself as being unwanted and in the middle, and he would escape to nature. He would escape and retreat to this field with nobody in it when there was trouble in the home. Well, then he grows up and he sees science from the standpoint of how do we reduce population? How do we export contraceptives and birth control and sterilization uh, appetite to governments and take a top-down approach to the problem of carrying capacity. Both men, both William Vogt and Norman Borlaug, uh, confronted the problem of not enough resources for the number of mouths to feed, not enough resources for the number of people to take care of and provide for within third world countries, in particular poor countries. But they were coming from a very affluent country, the United States of America, into spaces where there wasn't so much affluence and they were bringing what they perceived as the solution with them based on what they perceived the problem to be. On the one hand, you have somebody saying, oh, there's not enough food. So we should make more food. We should figure out how to make more food. On the other hand, you have somebody saying, there's not enough food. So we should have fewer people. There's not enough resources. So we should have fewer people to consume the resources. That's how we're going to do it. And Bill Gates is in the William Vote mold. Let's improve health, as he calls it. Now, keep in mind, some people today regard as healthcare and call women's healthcare abortion. They say, we've got to keep Planned Parenthood alive so that we can give women the abortions that we want them to have. I mean, that they want. We can encourage them and talk them into it because it's big business now. That is healthcare because we don't want unwanted children. Well, that's a William Vote type of uh, mindset. That's a William Vote type of mentality. 
and approach to things. But by contrast, here's another very wealthy, uh, you know, technically savvy, uh, you know, uh, citizen of earth, <laughs> uh, approaching this question from a very different perspective and coming to a very different conclusion. Here's Elon Musk on the question of population and becoming overpopulated, et cetera, et cetera. Take a listen. Um, yeah, so most people in the world are operating under the false impression that, uh, that there are too many people. Um, this is not true. Earth could maintain a population many times at the current level. Um, uh, and the birth rate has been dropping like crazy. Um, so, the, and, and unfortunately, like, we have these, like, uh, ridiculous uh, uh, population estimates from the UN that need to be updated because they just don't make any sense. Um, really, you can just look and say, what was the birth rate last year? How many kids were born? Multiply that by the um, life expectancy and say, okay, that's how many people will be alive, uh, you know, um, in the future. Uh, and then say, is the trend for birth rate positive or negative? It's negative. So that's the best case, unless something changes with the birth rate. Um, I mean, you can look at, take, take Japan, for example. I think, uh, I'm just going off memory here, but I think the population is roughly 110 million. Um, but last year, um, if you take the uh, number of uh, children born times the life expectancy, which is 85 years, it's very impressive uh, life expectancy then Japan would uh, have, I think, around uh, 68 million people, roughly half of the current population. That does not tell the full story because those that you would have an upside-down demographic pyramid. You already have an upside-down demographic pyramid where, you know, a lot of old people, very few young people. And, um, um, you know, so, so how is this, that upside-down demographic pyramid is unstable. So there you have it. There you have it. Look at the math, look at the numbers. You are being strongly encouraged to actually look at the data here and not just go off of nudges and the soft sell and the subtle insinuations that we need to, uh, you know, tamp down on our, <laughs> uh, you know, being fruitful and multiplying, right? That That is what's being offered up by the likes of Bill Gates. And he's just one who's saying the quiet part out loud. But there are many, many others who are promoting this. I just recently played a little sound clip of Andrew Garfield, actually, here, what, three episodes ago, about a week ago, his talking through being almost 40, not having any kids, wanting to resist this pressure on young men to get married, start a family. You know, he's having his best life right now. He doesn't need to have kids to find fulfillment. You find more and more young people are saying that it's not original to him. It is actually, uh, you know, almost in the water supply. I say that figuratively, but it's almost in the water supply that that attitude is being communicated by more and more young folk who are between 20 and 30 or between 30 and 40. They're saying, I don't want to have kids. But if you listen to Elon Musk and you look at the data, the data does not support this chicken little skies falling. You know, we're destroying planet Earth and, you know, we need to call it 
kind of a mentality. It's just not supportive of the conclusions that are being drawn, which are not new, by the way. You know, look at Thomas Malthus. Look at his having theorized this a long time ago, centuries ago. Born 1766. He died 1834. He had this notion and he popularized it. And a lot of people took it and ran with it that when we reach the planet's carrying capacity and exceed it as a human race, what will follow will be famines and wars and social strife and a great deal more suffering than if we were to choose to scale it back. Hey, let's pull back. Let's not have so many kids. Let's not reproduce quite so much. Let's uh, you know pace ourselves as a race to where we maintain. The problem with Thomas Malthus's idea and also those who are communicating such notions right now is that Malthus, for one, did not anticipate what would happen with the agricultural revolution. He had no category for what was going to be possible with the likes of Norman Borlaug flying all over the world and exporting specially grown strains of wheat, for instance, that were drought resistant, that would produce much higher yields, much more reliably in places that don't get a lot of moisture, or that would be resistant to various things that otherwise reduce crops from growing productively, reliably, getting to market, feeding people. Thomas Malthus had no category for mass transportation, the likes that we have now, being able to move foodstuffs to the markets that need them in a timely manner with refrigeration so that they show up still edible, still viable, still capable of being sold and kept until they're ready to eat. Thomas Malthus did not have a category for the modern supermarket or the modern big box store like Costco or Sam's Club or families having electrified refrigerators and freezers that they can store food in. He didn't have a category for these things. And the folks now who are saying that we're fast approaching the earth's carrying capacity, they are investing their time and their attention in the wrong direction. Like William Vogt did, they have a very bleak view of the teeming masses of humanity that I think when you really get down to it, these folks hold in a certain contempt. They see themselves as better than those folks and as being uh, almost godlike in their superiority of intellect, sophistication, their grasp of science, their grasp of what is necessary, their capacity to act on what they see as best for humanity or for the planet, they're willing increasingly to be very manipulative and, you know, (laughs) um, certainly within the past century, in some places, mass murderous because they're going to try initially to persuade, then they're going to try to manipulate, then they're going to just force hands and remove the ability of people they don't see as fit to reproduce to bear 
children, to have offspring. I don't think this, <laughs> I don't think this is actually half so much about the earth's carrying capacity. When you really drill down, I don't think it's half so much about the earth's ability to support such and such a number of people. It's more to do with the lack of patience, the lack of love for others that is held by some very wealthy, very powerful, very self-impressed people who don't fear God. That's another aspect here that needs to be brought to bear. Not to say that Elon Musk comes to the conclusions that he does because he fears God or because he is a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. Although I do think he's coming to the right conclusions out of something approaching a greater reverence for right and wrong. I mean, there's a difference categorically in my way of thinking between those who are lax in their own personal morals and sometimes are behaving in ways that are not appropriate, occasionally living a playboy billionaire lifestyle like Elon Musk, like Donald Trump. There's a difference to my mind in category between those guys on the one hand and on the other hand, the type who are willing and ready and expert at making slaves of the rest of humanity. In the one hand, you may have men who are themselves slaves to their own passions, their own interests, their own appetites to a certain extent. And that extent would be beyond what is correct, what is appropriate. But on the other hand, you have men who are fully and wholly corrupt and they are content to destroy any number of people they have to in order to satisfy some deep and abiding ambition uh, to become like gods themselves. You know, on the one hand, you may have an insufficient regard for God's standard, his righteous standard, how we then should live. But on the other hand, I think you have a ambition to be God and to ascend to the most high, to do the same thing that Satan did. And both alike, sinners, sure, but I actually hold out some hope and pray for the one category, and I do believe that God can use both alike for his purposes, even if they are totally hostile to God, totally self-impressed. God used Pharaoh too, even when Pharaoh said, no, 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 and hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart to make an example out of him. But remember, every other member of the cast of characters in our Bibles, except for Christ himself, who at best is a flawed person, is a flawed character, who errs, who misspeaks, who acts sometimes impetuously, impulsively, and does not do what they ought. That's all God ever works with when it comes to humanity. And thankfully for us, God has patience with us, and he's not quick to anger. He is slow to anger. He doesn't burn us up at the very instant that we transgress his law, and we shouldn't hope for that for others who are imperfect any more than we would want that for ourselves. We should extend grace where grace is appropriate. Now, I have some stats I want to share with you and some fun facts from Not the Beast staff along these lines. They linked 
to it in their recent entry with the Bill Gates video and the Elon Musk video that I played some audio for you from. But this post from NTB staff from July 20th of this year has a title, The World is Far Less Populated Than You Think. Take a look at these maps and then go make some babies, which is great. Great idea uh, for most of us. Most of us need to hear that, probably. They've got some really fantastic infographics, which you've got to see. I can't accurately describe the way that they look and what an impression they can create in terms of population density around the world. But the U.S., the United States of America, it's a big country. It's a wealthy country out of proportion with other countries. It is really not that populated compared to how big of a country this is. Now, do keep in mind the four states with the lowest population density in the U.S., in the contiguous connected United States, are Wyoming, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. And I have spent the majority of my life in those states or near them. We live in Colorado now, but I'm originally from Montana. Montana is one of the least densely populated states in the union. North Dakota, right next door. Wyoming, just to the south. I've done a lot of work in Montana, North Dakota, and Wyoming over the past decade. I've grown up in the Rockies. There's just not a lot of people here compared with how much land there is. By contrast, it's almost no wonder that folks from the coasts, particularly the big cities, LA, New York, think that the earth is overpopulated. You know what? Maybe the earth is not overpopulated. Maybe it's just Manhattan. Maybe maybe it's just LA. Maybe you guys need to get out more because <laughs> uh, where you're from, yeah, sure. Okay. It, it might be overpopulated, but check out the Midwest. Check out even Denver area. Denver is growing like gangbusters. Greeley area also you know, it's one of the least expensive uh, parts of the front range here in Colorado, but it is still not like so super, super densely packed. I have been to New York City. It is people on top of people on top of people. Everywhere you look, there's people. I have spent a fair amount of time in Cincinnati area. Cincinnati's not quite as big as Denver is, but there's lots of people, right? There's lots of people. And I've been in other major cities. I've been to Houston, right? I've been through Atlanta. There are some very densely packed places, St. Louis, lots of people there. But in comparison to how big of a country even just the United States of America is, those are not big, big places. Lots of people, relatively speaking, but there's a lot of land that we could spread out into if our interest is in just decreasing population density, which some of these places, yeah, they, they probably could stand to see less density. But that would mean, to my way of thinking, folks move out of those cities, not folks just self-terminate or eliminate one another or stop having children. Now, it is interesting. I mean, Texas, for instance, Texas has this reputation for... Being a big state, it is a big state. 
Did you know 84% of Texans live in urban areas like, for instance, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth? 84%. That's a lot of Texans packed into just a couple of places that are not the majority of Texas, whatever folks from Houston might think. Now, if we look at a bigger map of the world, there are some really densely populated places like Indonesia, for instance. Super, super dense island country. The the cities in Indonesia, very packed. The Philippines, very packed, but also surrounded by water, which supports a lot of that life. A lot of fishing, a lot is harvested from the oceans, and the oceans are awfully big. We don't appreciate how big our oceans are, many of us, and how much life is supported by our oceans. We think we're just eating all the fish in the world, and they're just going to be gone because people eat so much. No, no, not so, not so. Particularly when you look at countries like Australia or Iceland, very, very few people live in these countries. Now, if you're from India, India, very, very densely packed. But bear in mind that countries like India and China and Bangladesh and Indonesia, like these countries are the exception. They're not the rule. That's not what the whole world is like. If you're watching a documentary from somebody who wants you to think that the earth is way overpopulated and you should stop even thinking about wanting to have children, that's just so selfish. If you're watching one of those documentaries, they're going to show you footage from Manhattan and from Shanghai and from Jakarta and from New Delhi. They're going to show you the most densely packed places on earth where people are just on top of people, on top of people, on top of people. They're not going to show you wide open Iceland or Montana or Australia. They're just not. But the whole human race, if we were as densely packed as people are in Manhattan, the entire human race could fit in the country of New Zealand. Just think about that. More people live in China, India, Bangladesh, the Philippines, than the whole rest of the world combined. And it's a big world. And we're not filling it up. Not yet. Now, we are called to it. And somebody might say, well, we shouldn't. We shouldn't fill up the earth, right? And we consume an outsized percentage of resources. And look at all this environmental devastation caused by our mining operations and drilling and oil and gas and plastics in the ocean. You know what? If there's some work to be done to make this or that safer or cleaner, put your attention into that. Don't put your attention into trying to get people to live on starvation rations at your uh, (laughs) good pleasure to give them their daily bread and redistribute the world's resources. Don't, Don't try and talk them into not having children, not getting married, being a homosexual, being a transgender Having them having themselves spayed or neutered. Don't don't put your attention into that. Why don't you put all of your creative problem solving capacity into figuring out how to make renewable energy cost effective? And there's this recent breakthrough with regards to cold fusion, where it was just announced that they may actually be able to make this thing work 
maybe 20 to 30 years, maybe it's not right around the corner, but they actually generated more energy for a short span of time than they were putting into the reaction to keep it alive, to keep it going. Well, that's incredible. That's really incredible. Why don't we put our attentions into things like that? If you're so concerned about what kind of uh, energy sources we're drawing on and whether that's sustainable, feasible, etc., put your attention not into trying to force everybody to just stop using energy or to stop existing. To you know, I suppose if we all stop existing, well, then we won't have to have a carbon footprint. But why put your attention into that, trying to get people to stop existing to reduce their carbon footprint? Why not? Why not put your attention into the tech and making it cost-effective, scalable, and easy to use and safe? Do that. Now, another character we do well to consider here as we're looking at this problem of overpopulation, whether the world is being, uh, you know, basically destroyed by humanity because we are in the process of succeeding at the filling it and subduing it thing that we were commanded by God. It's not an accident. It's not a bug. It's a feature of human existence that we would pursue this. If if we're drawn to it, it's not a moth to a flame, right? It, it's <laughs> an arrow to a target that we were am, a, that we were aimed at by the Almighty. But not everybody agrees with me. Clearly, not everyone in America, for instance, including failed. Uh, presidential candidates, including uh, people who became famous hanging out with gorillas, uh, they don't necessarily agree with me. So I'm going to play a couple of clips here, one from Al Gore, one from Jane Goodall, and you can hear in their own words what they think and their perspective. And I think it's good for you too. I'm not trying to you know, make you sad, uh, obviously, of course right before Christmas in particular, but we do need to know what is being said by some people who are very interested in making decisions about your life, including how many children you have, whether you have children, when you have them, whether you can provide for them. Starting off, here's Al Gore and his sense of urgency regarding climate change. Take a listen of urgency next year is even greater than it is this year. This crisis, the climate crisis, is way worse than people generally realize. Way worse. It is getting worse still way faster than people realize. The burden to act that is on the shoulders of the generation of people alive today is a challenge to our moral imagination. But this is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. This is the Battle of the Bulge. This is Dunkirk. This is 9-11. We have to rise to this occasion. We have the tools. We have the solutions. We know what to do. We lack the requisite political will. Political will for anyone who doubts that we as human beings has, have the capacity to rise above our limitations and transcend the, the, the difficulties we now face. Remember that political will is itself a renewable resource. I'm here to educate you about the single biggest threat to our planet. You see, there is something out there which threatens our very existence and maybe the end to the human race as we know it. I'm talking, of course, 
about Man Bear Pig. Man Bear Pig? And <laughs> uh, let me just say, I, I, I am actually probably more concerned about Man Bear Pig than I am about climate change and global warming. But seriously, uh, South Park aside, let's talk about this claim that this is our thermopylae, this is our Agincourt, this is our Battle of the Bulge, this is Dunkirk and 9-11 and all the rest and all the worst things and be afraid, be very afraid. You know, forget the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. No, no, be very afraid. You know, if this is thermopylae, Al Gore is not the Spartans. He's the Persians. He's wanting some earth and water. He's wanting that tribute from every country on the face of the planet. He was wanting everyone to submit to his idea of what is best. And it is megalomaniacal. And he's not alone, right? He's not alone. You know, if this is thermopylae, you know, the Greeks need to oppose uh, Al Gore, because it's insanity. It is slavery that's being proposed. It's not freedom. It's not freedom to make your own decisions. It is the freedom to bend the knee to the Persian emperor who wants to dominate all life and and sees himself as the king of kings, right? He doesn't regard God as king. He thinks of himself as a god. But again, Al Gore is not alone. He's not the only one who thinks this. There's also folks like Jane Goodall. It's the whole Davos crowd that gets together. It's the whole WEF, World Economic Forum crowd. It is the it is the Great Reset folks who are on board with this and promoting and helping to push this narrative. Here's Jane Goodall at Davos talking about population and the concern with how many people there are on planet Earth. We cannot hide away from human population growth because, you know, it underlies so many of the other problems. All these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there, were, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. Uh, which is nonsense. That, that's just, that, that's not, that's not the right attitude. That's not the right perspective. That's not accurate. You know, what, what's missed here is that technological advances have made the air cleaner. We are not polluting just by existing, but that is really what it boils down to is when you brush aside the push for decommissioning power plants and, you know, getting people to not drink water out of plastic bottles all of the things that are debatable, it's okay. Where do we get our electricity? Put all that stuff aside. It really does boil down to if you want less consumption, you're going to have to get rid of consumers. You want people to buy less, to consume less, to produce less, to do less, to have less of an impact on planet Earth. What you actually want is less people. And how do you accomplish that? How do you go about making that happen? What's actually being proposed here? is, I think, eugenics. And the reason for this is that the eugenics movement never really went away. The folks who were for forcible sterilization of undesirables here in the U.S., folks like Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood and especially targeted minority neighborhoods 
and poorer neighborhoods. She wanted to eradicate uh, black people and folks from Eastern Europe, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the folks who exported the eugenics movement to Germany, and then Germany turned it into the Holocaust, into the final solution to the quote-unquote Jewish problem, those folks, they did not see themselves as the villains any more than the Al Gore, Jane Goodall, uh, Klaus Schwab types today see themselves as the villains. The Nazis didn't see themselves as the villains. Margaret Sanger, I don't think, saw herself as the villain. She saw herself, they saw themselves, these folks see themselves as being the heroes of the story. But that's because they've got the story exactly backwards and upside down. They think the problem is people in a way that is anti-life. It is a death cult. It is at its root a plan and a ambition to eliminate people. And one of the ways you do this is by pinching people's ability to support themselves and be independent and do what is economically advantageous to themselves, all in the name of saving the planet and not for us, not for our posterity, from us, from our posterity. When they want us to stop having children, they don't have a view of the future that sees our children inheriting the planet after us. They have a view of the future in which maybe their children, if they have children, their specially selected best specimens uh, who are from the best schools or from the best laboratories, <laughs> you know, test tube designer babies, uh, you know, raised on progressive utopian ideals. Those folks inherit the earth, but conservatives, uh, Christians in particular, they have no patience for because we believe in a dominion mandate. We believe that we are actually supposed to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Lots of other people besides us are all about that. But Christians in particular, in the wealthiest, most advanced, most prosperous, most affluent, most technologically uh, adept countries in the world, Christians in particular have an outsized voice in pushing back on this idea, so long as the church is not hijacked to promote these kinds of ideas, these kinds of solutions, this way of framing problems that is anti-human and, by extension, is disobedient to God. Christians are the number one threat, and this is part of why you see the church evolving its position, just like politicians, just like Barack Obama, evolving its position on questions of gender and sexuality is because the church is seen as a primary conduit for nudging the developed nations in the direction of promoting this for the common good, for the greater good. But it's not biblical. It's not in keeping with what God commanded Adam and Eve or Noah and his family when they got off the ark. It's not in keeping with what Jeremiah 29, 7 says, increase in the land and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. They don't agree with that. In fact, they see that as a threat. They see that as problematic. They see that as potentially disastrous to their larger ambitions. And insofar as 
you do have some very wealthy, affluent, academic, intellectual, and uh, <laughs> powerfully connected people who get together to promote this. Even just the tone is, it is not one of debate, consideration, or open-mindedness. It's not one that's open to reason. It is one that is just absolutely sure of its own self-righteousness, of its own brilliance, of its own genius, of its own necessity, of its own inevitability. And as Christians, for one, one danger we run into is being taken in by that, being taken captive by that in our thinking, internalizing it, teaching our children after us to believe this or to wink at it. On the other hand, the danger we run into is hearing these things and despairing and supposing that this actually is just what it's going to be. No, no. These folks don't win in the end. They don't. They, they don't. Now, someone will hear me say that and they'll say, well, but Garrett, look at the data. Look at the earth warming and look at the science. And it sounds like you're a science denier. That's not good for our testimony. And why aren't you in a university somewhere? If you know so much, you know, you've abandoned the higher calling if you really wanted to do something about this. And you're part of the problem. Look at all these kids you've got and look at you guys homeschooling. And so you're not sending your kids into the public schools to be missionaries. And, you know, you're, you're working in the oil and gas industry for crying out loud. So you're helping to promote all of this. And it, okay, you know what? It's true. I'm not in the universities. It's true that I got married and my wife and I, by God's grace, have eight children, and we are homeschooling those children. And you can buy my book, and I'll make the case for why you should homeschool yours too if you have some, or you should encourage young families that you know to homeschool their kids and get their kids out of the public schools. It's true that I work in the oil and gas industry because this is where I can best provide for my family. But I think that's just it. I think that's part of why the Al Gore types are targeting industries like mine. And I think that's why it's a fatal mistake. I think it's, uh, it's self-destructive when you do have oil and gas companies that are buying into this because they're trying to be the ones that survive, right? Okay, we'll give them what they want. We'll parrot their social engineering, social justice, critical theory views under the guise of HR, training and harassment prevention and things like that, respect for others in the workplace. We'll promote all of that so that we're the ones who still have a license to operate. We're the ones who still get our permits approved. So that we're the ones at the end of the day who are still around and don't go bankrupt, don't get shut down, don't get fined out of existence. Elon Musk is right. Some of these big oil and gas companies, increasingly, I'm seeing it in recent years. Yes, even oil and gas companies, because their management come from the same schools, go to the same parties, live in the same neighborhoods, send their kids to the same schools as the kids of these Davos types. The managers of these companies, the shareholders of these companies increasingly are saying, yeah, let's go along with it. It's a bad, bad idea. Y'all ought to listen more to the Elon Musk reasoning. Look at the data. Look at the numbers. This is disastrous. This is hugely destabilizing. This is not going to end the way that you think it's going to end. This is you destroying yourself. Elon Musk's recent comment about how 
this woke business is either defeated or else nothing else matters. It's right because this is of a piece with the Jim Jones Heaven's Gate cult and the drinking of the Kool-Aid. When the jig is up and accountability is coming and the party's over because it was all a farce, an incredibly corrupt and abusive uh, farce, self-serving, not so hyper-spiritual, not so altruistic as you purported. When the jig is up, what happens to the Heaven's Gate folks? Well, they're told to drink the Kool-Aid. And the Kool-Aid is poison. And the poison kills them. And they are all dead. And that's a test case for, I think, a larger idea that is being hoisted on the world. And it's satanic. It is. It is against God's plan for dealing with problems, for approaching the opportunity that we have for fulfilling the purpose that we were created to fulfill as image bearers. If we don't accept that we are image bearers of God, well then, I suppose man run amok with his own sin being self-actualized left and right and center, he does get to looking like a major problem in the world. And maybe you do want fewer people. But the same folks who are talking about just going back to 6.7 billion fewer people than there are today, because that's what the population of Earth was about 500 years ago. The folks who are talking about that, they get a pass somehow. And that's okay, right? That's okay. We start talking about God being the righteous judge. Well, then we can't have that. That's not just. Frankly, I myself, I should rather trust in God. I should rather look to God for some solutions to these problems. You know, if there is a problem of carrying capacity, do we not remember God's promise that if his people who are called by his name would turn from their sins and seek his face, he would heal their land. He would cause it to rain again. He would cause the crops to grow. God's not looking for human sacrifices like the Aztecs, like the Mexica. He's not looking for human sacrifices and blood offerings. Christ already paid that. And if we reject that payment, but we still have that sense of guilt as a race and the need for an atoning sacrifice, whose gods are we appeasing exactly? Not Yahweh God, not the God of the Bible, not the actual God of gods who made the world and rules and reigns over it forevermore. Not that God, because that God has already paid the cost through Christ, through the incarnation. So whose gods are we trying to appease? That's the question. I don't know what Jane Goodall would answer that question with. I don't know what Al Gore would answer that question with. But this is an anti-Christ spirit that is animating their ambitions, their endeavors, their pursuits. We don't need to despair and be afraid of it, but we do well to not be taken captive by it, and to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, to take our cues from God, Most High, to pay attention to His Word, what He's called us to, what He has told us to be about. We do well to be about that. And in that is a blessing. Now, real quick, before we run out of time, because I am coming up against a hard break, I want to play for you a little clip my wife sent me on Instagram about a Charlie Brown Christmas. Did you know is the big question. 
Did You Know? Take a listen to this little ditty. There has to be some sort of a message of fear of offending somebody. And then Charles Schultz decided, you know, if we're going to be talking about Christmas on mm-hmm. television, we have to be talking about the birth of Christ. We can't not have it. But his business partners said, I'm not so sure that we can do that. Mm. And in fact, when they did show it to CBS, CBS said, this Bible thing scares us. Because in the mid-60s, television was still unsure about can we or can't we talk about religion. And Charles Schultz's answer was simply, if we don't do it, who will? And so they did, and it's a classic. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Next, please. There were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it's about. I didn't know. There's some fun stuff for you. Uh, that's fantastic. Fantastic that Charles Schultz pushed right through. And I'm glad he did. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of modern art. And uh, I I love it. I love that scene. I'm sure you do too. Linus getting up and telling what Christmas is really about. It's not about all this pageantry. It's not about having the nicest tree. It's not about having presents, especially when inflation is doing what it is. It's not having presents that are expensive for everybody in your life or else they're not going to talk to you again. We're all in the same boat there. The greatest gift is the one God gave to us in Christ with the incarnation. That is a very, very great gift. And if that's all we have, that's quite enough. That's eternal life for those who believe in him. That's a very, very great gift. And that can change dramatically our perspective on this time of the year. When a lot of folks who don't believe that, who don't know that, who don't remember that, are very depressed, we can be very, very joyful and very glad for what we've been given. Now, real quick, before I completely run out of time, there's two stories I want to mention just briefly, because like I said, I'm coming up against a heartbreak and I got to run. But Glenn Beck did a little piece on the uh, potential releasing and publication of the JFK files. And this has been delayed several times. It's been, what, 50 years since JFK, John F. Kennedy, uh, president of the United States, was assassinated while driving down uh, the road in Houston, Texas. Lee Harvey Oswald was the guy who was, uh, you know, kind of the fall guy at least for the crime. But This actually is where the origin of the term conspiracy theory came from, that folks who didn't believe the official report, the official investigation uh, results surrounding this assassination, they were dismissed with the pejorative conspiracy theorist. But it was a lot of Americans, it was a lot, a lot, who said they didn't buy it. 
the official narrative being that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. He was just a crazy, you know, lone wolf guy who was disgruntled and who was enamored with communism and didn't like JFK. A lot of Americans didn't believe it. A lot of Americans still don't believe it. And I'll play for you just this little bit of Glenn Beck talking through some of the potential ramifications of why this is not being released still yet. And uh, take a listen because it does fit. It does fit uh, actually what else we are talking about here. Is the Here is the, I think, the, the nicest way to look at this, that Lee Harvey Oswald was, and we have pretty good evidence, that Lee Harvey Oswald was um, a CIA operative on other things, and they were involved in uh, trying to overthrow Cuba. And the most, the nicest way to look at this for the CIA, giving them all the benefit of the doubt, is they had no idea that Oswald was going to do this, and it was the biggest intelligence um, failure in the history of our nation. Okay, but we're so used to intelligence failures now. That's not enough to stop it. Mm-hmm. Okay, the worst case scenario is that this was a CIA operation. This was coordinated through our Justice Department and our CIA, CIA operating here in the United States. But see, that's not even that bad because that's 50 years ago. They're doing it now and people don't seem to care. Mm -hmm. So what is it that our government was doing? Because I personally believe the way they are setting this up you know, it doesn't make conspiracy theories go away. It makes it worse. The, when they come out, it's one thing to say, we're going to hold them back. Then you speculate. It's another to say, I'm going to hold them back to protect against an identifiable harm to the military defense, intelligence operations, law enforcement, and the conduct of foreign relations that is of such gravity that it outweighs the public interest in disclosure. It's a remarkable statement. That's a remarkable statement. And that is actually the statement that is being made with the official explanation for why the JFK files are still not going to be released as yet. There is a real threat to security and the ability of our government to protect this country if they release the files even 50 years later. What is the story what actually happened there? Worst case scenario, best case scenario. I'd be curious to know what you think. But moving on, Reno Mayor files lawsuit after discovering tracking device on her vehicle by Dylan Burroughs. Yesterday was uh, when this was published over at the Daily Wire. Reno, Nevada, Mayor Hillary Sheave, she's an independent has sued a private investigator after discovering a GPS tracking device on her vehicle. Long and short of it, somebody decided they wanted to track her location in real time and figure out where is she going, what's she up to, what's up with that, right? Sheev, the article ends, Sheev won her re-election by about 16,000 votes over independent Eddie Lorton, securing 59% of the votes. She previously served as an at-large council member before becoming mayor eight years ago. What's this about, right? You do have people who maybe want to pressure a sitting mayor 
to get certain things approved or passed or not passed or not approved. And is this an example of a uh, you know mayor of a major American city being set up for being threatened or extorted or what have you? I don't know. But it does go to show that even when we have elected officials, like let's say, for instance, a president of the United States or the mayor of a major city, these people are still just people at the end of the day. And whether they are corrupt, whether they have good intentions, they still have pressure points and they can still be bullied, intimidated, bribed, even if they come in with a certain notion of doing the right thing and being honest and being fair. And what we should not suppose is that we are going to find political solutions, humanly speaking, to all of the problems that we face, because we're just not. But going back again to the overpopulation question, whatever the story is with JFK, whatever the story is with this uh, Reno, Nevada mayor, whatever problem we're facing, if we are only thinking in human terms, we are going to either be very afraid or we're going to give ourselves a license to misbehave and to act very badly. And something to consider is not whether we retreat from all of that and look to God and we are only concerned with spiritual things as if the spiritual has no relation to this physical world. This earth is not our home. And so we are just biding our time and waiting. That's not an option. But if we are seeking the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile, we do pay attention to these things and we trust the God. And we first remove planks from our own eyes so that we can see clearly to help our brother remove the speck from his eye. But then we actually do move on to that second thing of helping our brother to remove the speck from his own eye. What's more, we are called to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, and we do well in being wise and harmless and innocent all at the same time. We do well to trust to God and to pray very intentionally that God would protect us, provide for us, give us wisdom, help us to make good decisions that honor him. Not so that we can be so great and look so good and everybody will clap for us, because very often it's not the case that serving God, following God, actually results in everybody patting us on the back and you know throwing <laughs> uh, confetti in, in the big parade downtown. If we are trusting ourselves to God and looking for ways to represent him well in our time, in our circumstance, with all of these miscellaneous uh, stories and rumors and speculations, then we can have peace. Now, casting our cares on him, for he cares for us. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Be anxious for nothing. Think on these things. Whatever is excellent, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is praiseworthy, think on these things. Present your requests to God. Something to think about, even the week of Christmas, no less than any other week, but also good to think about in relation to even the nativity story. Think about how much speculation there is about what's going on in government, who's going to win out, and who's doing what, and maneuvering how, and what are their ambitions, what are their plans, what are their designs. All of it, God sits in heaven and looks at and laughs 
to himself about because he's the one who decides what will happen and what won't happen. He's the one who will make sure that his promises are fulfilled and are kept. And he does work all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, just as it is written. But like I said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. It's been a while since I recorded and I'm glad to have gotten a podcast in today, but my wife and I are actually on our way here very shortly to have dinner with some of my coworkers with GRDI in Denver. We're going to have dinner and uh, get out for a bit this evening, get some steak on them. So I don't know when I'll podcast again, especially coming into the end of the year, this being the week of Christmas, but whenever it is, thank you for listening this time. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.